Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. He ko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai, and welcome to this hour changing world podcast from RNZ with me, Alison Balance. Weeks of being stuck at home has got me thinking about what is this place that we call home? I bet most of us still describe New Zealand as an island, especially in these coronavirus times when being a small, isolated landmass does have its advantages. But back pre lockdown, I caught up with a couple of geologists. They were among a group meeting in Wellington to discuss some exciting findings from a scientific voyage aboard the Joides Resolution drilling ship back in 2017. This was the same year Zealandia was accepted as the world's smallest continent. That's right, folks, we are not an island. To find out more, let's catch up with Kiwi Rupert Sutherland and American Jerry Dickens. Here's Rupert. So Zealandia is a, a big continent. It's about twice the size of India, and it stretches off around New Zealand all the way up to New Caledonia and all the way south down past Campbell Island into the subantarctic. And it's quite a new continent in the sense new and recognising it. Yeah, it's really the most recently recognised continent. And it was discovered like in, the, in really in the 1960s and 1970s, I suppose, when they did lots of seafloor mapping but it wasn't really recognised formally as a continent until very recently. And why was that? What was our former definition of a continent that excluded it? The thing that really changed was the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is about sovereignty over the seabed. And when the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea was ratified in, I think it was 1994, then all the countries in the world went out to try and put their continental boundaries down on the seabed. And so Sealandia was an interesting one because it has bits of France, New Caledonia, and Australia, with Lord Howe Island, Macquarie Island, those sorts of places, and of course New Zealand. And so there was a lot of effort put in to surveying the continent and to really thinking about it, and actually whether something is continental is actually a fundamental part of the law of the sea. The definition of continent is interesting that most people think of a continent as a large block of, of land. But of course, that gets complicated because if, once you get off the coast and go out, you're still on the continent. It just happens to be flooded. And so, for instance, my own continent in North America, about 30% is underwater. Think of large stretches off New Zealand or all around Florida. Once you get to the coastline, it still goes for... 100 uh, kilometers or so before you actually get to the edge of the continent, so it's a little bit underwater. An interesting way to think about that is for much of, let's say, the last million years, that really was continent because when we had ice sheets, the water from the sea goes up, and so the old coastline is effectively very close to the true continent. That's a little bit different in, in Zealandia, though, because most of the continent itself sits at about an average depth of, well, maybe a 1,000 meters below water, but it's still continental crust, and so it's the material that makes up land. And so across our surface, 
we have both continents and oceans at the basic level where, where the oceans are these deep areas and the continents are the shallow areas uh, with some of it being flooded. And so it just happens what makes New Zealand different is so much of it is underwater, something 94% or so is, is underwater, unlike, you know, U.S. Uh, or North America being, you know, 70% above water. What do we know about Zealandia in terms of what it is geologically then? That's actually a very good question, and that was the whole point of why we went on the drilling expedition. We know quite a lot about the geology of New Zealand and New Caledonia and some of the small little islands that, that crop out. But most of Zealandia is underwater, as Jerry just said. So it's covered in a veneer of sediment, which is why you have to drill to try and find out what's deeper down underneath that sediment. And so that's what we were doing. So quickly remind me of that expedition. This was a 2017 expedition on board Joydis Resolution. Yes, that's right. So it was on the uh, Joydis Resolution, which is a, a drill ship, which is operated by the United States, by Texas A&M University. And it's part of the platforms that operate as part of the International Ocean Discovery Program. And that's an international collaboration that goes out to explore the oceans for all sorts of different reasons. And so we went out for nine weeks out into the northern part of Zealandia to drill six sites and collect a bunch of new information about what Zealandia is made of. And that was for the purpose of several scientific goals that were more than just looking at Zealandia, but actually trying to understand some fundamental earth processes. Such as how Zealandia formed? More fundamental than that, because how Zealandia formed is fundamental to understanding how other continents formed as well. So tell me a bit more about that. A lot of Zealandia is underwater. And if you were to look at other continents on Earth, you would see that at least 50% of their surface area is characterised by low-lying land or shallow seas, very shallow seas, just a few, you know, a couple of hundred metres deep or less. But those continents, they have continental slopes which go down into the deep ocean. So more than half the surface area of Earth is characterised by water depths more than 3,000 metres deep. And the oceans have quite different geology to the continents. And what are the processes which make the geography of continents the way that they are is a fundamental question of of Earth sciences. And Zealandia is very unusual because it has 90% of its surface area is basically its continental slope. And so we really get a chance to understand how that process is of how that happens and why Zealandia is the way it is gives us insight into how other continents now and in the past have formed. So what do you think is the story of how Zealandia formed? At a basic level, um, Zealandia, Australia and Antarctica were all connected about oh, 100 plus million years ago. And so it was one continent, and then it started, Zealandia split off from the other two, and then eventually Australia and Antarctica separated. And we've known that for a while, that you have three sort of blocks, each continent. It's just most people weren't considering Zealandia its own continent. And then a funny thing happens is, is around 50 million years or so, that process of separating Zealandia from Australia and Antarctica stops. And then that's where the whole of Zealandia gets truly fascinating because it, it's not like it just stops. It, it starts going through compression and uplift, and so parts of Zealandia are, are moving up and parts are going down, and, and it becomes a very complicated continent. And that's all happening 
starts around uh, you know 50 plus million years and then continues, and that's something we're trying to figure exactly when it ends and when what part. And so that was a major objective of the cruise. In fact, what we've been talking about the last couple of days here in, in, in Wellington. You had an international crew of scientists on the boat and you have been meeting. So what are the kinds of things you've been meeting and talking about? We've been talking through all of the analyses that have been, that have been done over the last two years on all the samples that we collected. So obviously you go out into the middle of the ocean, you collect sediment cores from deep beneath the seabed and you do a huge amount of work just on the basic description of those and you come off the ship and you've got this book basically that you've already written by the time you've come off it but in order to really understand what's going on back in the past you need to then take some samples from those cores back to the lab and do all sorts of clever analyses on them, looking at the fossils in more detail, maybe even dissolving them up and finding out what the chemistry is to reconstruct things like, um, you know, past water temperatures and all sorts of stuff like that. And so because it's the International Ocean Discovery Program, people have disappeared off to all different countries all around the world, which makes it quite difficult to communicate. I mean, we do communicate um, by email and stuff, but there's no substitute really for getting together and actually talking through all of the painstaking analyses that have been done over the last two years. So are you beginning to get a a sense, like a picture of what bits went up when and what bits went down when and why they were doing that? Yes, and that's really one of the fundamental discoveries, I suppose, of our expedition is that we... So Jerry told you about how Zealandia separated from um, the other parts of Gondwana and that during the sort of the time of the dinosaurs quite a long time ago. And I guess it's since about the 1970s, people had thought that Zealandia had basically just subsided deep into the ocean at that time and just hadn't really done much afterwards. But... What we've really proved on our, on our expedition is that that's not true, that all sorts of stuff happened um, between about 50 and 20 million years ago. And we've just published a paper that really documents that and proposes some ideas for why that's the case. So the thing that we're pretty clear about is that it's in some way related to the formation of the Pacific Ring of Fire, That's the ring of volcanoes. It comes from the volcanoes, but those volcanoes are related to a process which geologists call subduction, which is where one plate subsides and sinks deep back into the mantle. And that the gravitational force of that sinking is what pulls plates around. And as it goes down, it releases volatiles and triggers melting and creates volcanoes. It also creates the really big earthquakes that generate the big tsunamis, for example. So this zone of earthquakes and volcanoes that goes all the way around the rim of the Pacific is is called the Pacific Ring of Fire, named after its volcanoes, really. But it's it's really, for our perspective, the interesting thing is that it's where these plate boundaries are, where plates are coming together. And those are what really drive everything on Earth. They drive how the plates move, which in turn drives the types of volcanoes that you have, the earthquakes, the natural resources the climate because it affects the whole geochemical cycles of the planet and so understanding how the pacific ring of fire formed and how these subduction zones are created is was really that was the key scientific question that we wanted to address for me what's exciting because i am not in the field of tectonics 
at least in our field for a long time, we just sort of thought of the ocean as a bathtub and it's just there and water goes up and down. But what we've started to really learn, and, and it's just highlighted uh, very strongly in this particular expedition, is no, the bathtub's changing shape and the bottom's going up and parts are going deeper. And, and so it's this very complex world we live in. And, and that gives you a completely different view on how to interpret, for example, past climate records and, and many other parameters if we're suddenly in a world where the bottom of the bathtub is just moving around and the sides are changing dimensions. and Well, we knew that uh, uh, for a while, but, but it's more the, the, the seafloor is, is changing, and that to me is fascinating. So. so for me, the really fascinating thing that what we found is that we can now date exactly how certain parts of this process We can date when they happened, and that gives us a real insight into why it happened. So what we do know is that the tectonic plates changed motion during this event. So Australia, for example, started to move rapidly northwards away from Antarctica after about 44 million years ago. And at almost exactly the same time, the southern part of Zealandia split in two and created an ocean, which is the edge of the Campbell Plateau, So that was about 44 million years ago. Now, the interesting thing is we see a series of things happening before 44 million years ago. And so it seems like actually that the first signs of the Pacific Ring of Fire really being created were more like 50 million years ago or even slightly before. And that's fascinating because that predates the changes in tectonic plate motion. So... There's another factor that's interesting as well, and that is that with this geological evidence that these zones have resurrected ancient zones that were similar to that in the past. So in other words, there, was, there is evidence in New Zealand of older subduction systems that were active for many hundreds of millions of years, actually, and died before 100 million years ago. And it seems like the new subduction zone was created in pretty much the same place as where this old subduction was before. That's a very fascinating result. So this is a new idea? Yes, and and further to what I was just saying about um, the resurrection of subduction zones, how? How do you do that? You know, how do you actually start them moving in? How do you give them that push? Exactly. And so what we think, what we proposed just recently is that that these are zones which are primed and ready to go. You know, they, they clearly could go in the past, but for whatever reason they stopped. But they are ready to go. They have weaknesses. They have gravity contrasts. You know, they, they want to sink back down into the, into the mantle. But they're not. They're being held there because they're too strong. For, for some reason, they're, they're sitting there and they're too strong to start moving. But what we do know is now from our expedition is that they all started moving at about the same time. Like, geologically... It's almost instantaneous. We can't really resolve the difference. And so that's fascinating because we're talking about 10,000 kilometers of Pacific Rim that all suddenly just reactivated and started working again. So it wasn't even like it was a ripple effect that started in one place and then slowly worked its way around the Pacific? Well, yes, it probably was. So that's quite a good analogy. The analogy that I would like to make, I suppose, and it may not be a particularly good analogy, but it may be one which helps people to understand, is like an earthquake, right? If you have a geological fault and it's got stresses that have accumulated across it, but it's not moving because for whatever it's too strong, but then if it starts moving in one little place, once you get a nucleation of an earthquake in one place, 
the energy that's released as it starts to move and the weakening processes that occur during that initial movement allow it to then move just next to that place. And eventually that can spread across the whole fault plane until the whole fault has moved and released all the energy in an earthquake. And that happens dynamically, happens very quickly. And so we think that, it, okay, it wasn't an earthquake. It, wasn't, it didn't happen in like a minute. You know, it probably took a million years for it to happen. But it moves... It's still quite fast geologically yeah. speaking. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, a million years is like a blink of an eye for a lot of geologists. So probably in a pretty short amount of time, geologically speaking, these subduction zones were, that were primed and ready to go, once it started moving for whatever reason in one place, that then spread and started all the rest moving dynamically. And so that spread around the whole of the Pacific in a pretty short time geologically, and then everything started to move. And further to that, well, things started to move, and it's only after a certain amount of time there's a delayed reaction. There's a delayed reaction because the forces grow as the plate movement increases, because I can't think of a good analogy for this, but you know, if you have a slab of rock that's sinking down into the middle of the earth, the bigger that that slab gets, the bigger the force, the bigger the weight that's trying to pull the plate along. And so it took time for that force to grow and then change the plate motions, which is why it's so fascinating to try and analyse the events which occurred before the plate motion changes and try and understand that. And I, that, to me, that's been one of the really fascinating discoveries, is that we've been able to do that. We've been able to identify those things in the southern part of the Pacific Ring of Fire and compare it to the ages in the north, and we find that they're about the same. We're sort of at the tip of the iceberg right now uh, with a different view of how this part of the world works, and it's probably going to take many years to f- more fully figure it out, but just the, the revolution sort of started now. So what we haven't figured out yet is what the full implications are of what we've discovered because we've been focused on the problem of how the forces that drive the, the engine of the earth you know, moves everything around. That's, that was our primary science goal. But what we've discovered is that the northern part of the continent of Zealandia changed shape very dramatically. So something like the New Caledonia Trough. New Caledonia Trough is a feature which is 2,500 kilometres long and 300 kilometres across. It's a million square kilometres in size. And that subsided by several kilometres during this event in a short period of time. At the same time, a similar size area, the Lord Howe Rise, just next to it, again, a million square kilometres, was lifted up by a kilometre and areas that had been deep underwater became land and shallow seas. Well, that's got lots of implications. It's got implications for how the ocean currents could move, for the climate, for how animals and plants could migrate. There's a lot of implications, even for how evolution occurs of those animals and plants because of the conditions that they're subjected to. Thanks, Rupert. Rupert Sutherland is at Victoria University of Wellington. We also heard from Jerry Dickens, who's at Rice University in the United States. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 7th of May 2020. You can listen again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there, you could also sign up for our free weekly email newsletter. The link is at the bottom of the webpage. On the way down, you'll notice that the show has a very extensive library of past episodes, which will keep you entertained for days. 
if that's what you need. RNZ Our Changing World is, of course, available on your favourite podcast app. Stay in touch. We're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and do keep washing your hands still. Catch you next time. Kia pai tō rā. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.